Uh, but there's several scripture passages there, uh, as well as some articles from one of our confessions of faith from the Reformation, the Canons of Dort, they're called, not uh, canons like guns, but canons like uh, rules, theological formulations and whatnot. Uh, and you'll see there several passages. We're going to focus our hearts and minds on, on a few uh, going through uh, this evening, thinking about, uh, meditating upon, just for a few minutes, uh, what we call the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. Um, sometimes Reformed churches, we, we talk about uh, these doctrines of grace, or sometimes they're called the quote-unquote five points of Calvinism. Uh, I'm a firm believer that there is no such thing as the five points of Calvinism. Uh, there are five points of uh, what were called the Remonstrants, the, the Arminians, uh, back in the 17th century. They are the ones that had five points. Uh, and we only have five points because we responded to their five points. We really have 129 uh, points in the Heidelberg Catechism, plus uh, 37 uh, in the Belgic Confession of Faith. So uh, really, we're 166-point Calvinists. Uh, but that's a lot of points, you know? That's a lot of, that's a lot of stuff to memorize so we sometimes truncate it down and we, uh, we take the bait and we say, yeah, you know, we believe in the five points of Calvinism. What does your church believe? Well, uh, these so-called five points are, uh, are, are uh, what we've been thinking about uh, at least once so far and tonight again for the second time. Uh, we thought about, first of all, what was the doctrine of election? Uh, the sermon notes page is wrong there. It should say, what is the doctrine of Christ's redemption? So we thought about election last time, God's, uh, his eternal gracious from his own good pleasure to demonstrate his own mercy and love uh, to 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 rescue to choose to rescue from from all of eternity past if we can even imagine that uh, a, a whole host of people sometimes we say you know some he he chose some to salvation uh, but as we know from revelation chapter number five that we just read uh, for our opening scripture uh, it's out of every tribe and out of every language and out of every people and out of every nation that the lord jesus christ has redeemed people and in revelation chapter seven later on john uh, hears this great noise that sounds like uh, the roaring of a sea and he turns to look at the sound, that very strange biblical sort of irony, to look at the sound. And what does he see? He sees a, a, a whole numberless host of heaven, a multitude of peoples that no man can number. So we shouldn't think of the doctrine of election or of Christ's redemption in terms of a minuscule number. Or we'll come to think about what we call sometimes irresistible grace. That, that God only saves a few who come kicking and screaming against their wills into the kingdom of God. We don't know how many God has chosen, how many Christ has died for, the Holy Spirit is going to draw. Uh, it's not for us to know that. Only God knows that. It's for us to praise him for his redeeming grace and to cast the net wide and to spread the seed uh, to every human being who will hear us. And so the doctrines of grace are these wonderful doctrines that summarize for us what it means that God is God and what it means that uh, he gives to, to sinners like you and me salvation. So tonight, thinking of the doctrine of Christ's redemption. So God the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit have worked from all of eternity and uh, in time and, and human space and history to bring salvation to the ends of the earth out of mere grace. Uh, and that's the great thing that we should be struck by uh, in all of not just these passages, but all of Scripture, that God saves sinners. Amen? God saves sinners. Uh, it's not a matter of our deserving. 
Uh, it's not a matter of our being better than somebody else. God didn't choose me uh, be, uh, over and above someone else in my particular family uh, because I was somehow, you know, better, uh, maybe pr- prospectively better. God saw that I was going to be a better person, more fit for his grace. No, God saves by his grace. He saves sinners uh, by grace alone. So what is the doctrine of Christ's redemption? Well, redemption, of course, means that uh, it, it comes from uh, the, the world of business and commerce. Even in the Old Testament, it's, a, it's the word or, or, the, or the concept or the language uh, of purchasing, buying something. And so Jesus Christ has purchased us. He's bought us. And the cost, of course, is himself, or sometimes we say the cost of his own precious blood. Uh, we're not bought, as Peter tells us, with, the, with, with, with gold and silver, but by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, like a lamb who was slain. And so he purchases us, he buys us uh, out of the slavery of our sins, the slavery that we were held to by the devil, uh, and he brings us into the kingdom of God uh, to be adopted as his sons and daughters. Uh, and so that's what redemption is, is to purchase us out of our sins and to bring us into uh, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think about his redeeming grace, what is Christ's redemption? On the one hand, we want to say this, that he died for all sufficiently, that Jesus Christ died for all sufficiently. On the other hand, we want to say this, he died for the elect savingly. So he died for all sufficiently, he died for the elect savingly. Sometimes we hear that, uh, that phrase, uh, uh, sufficient for all, uh, or efficient, or something like that, uh, for some, or the elect. So he died for all sufficiently. And the first text that's there on that uh, sermon notes page is those wonderful words, uh, are those wonderful words of John the Baptist in John's Gospel, chapter number one, uh, where he is out preaching in the wilderness and, and he sees Jesus walking by. And keep in mind that uh, they are cousins, but as far as we know, they had never met up to that point. And he sees Jesus walking through the crowds with some of his disciples and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And up until that point, God had given in his Old Testament laws to Moses uh, some 1,500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ, give or take, uh, various laws. And one of them was this Passover lamb, or the, also the Day of Atonement. And so, there had been, say, 1,500, or at a minimum, 1,000 days of atonements. That one great day a year where one lamb was slain as a symbol of God redeeming and, and forgiving all their sins. There had been at least 1,000 Passovers until Jesus came. And there had been at least 1,000 years of every morning and every evening. There were also other kind of daily sacrifices that God required in the law. And there have been at least another, uh, again, a, 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 a thousand years of believers freely offering sacrifice and, and offering and pledging themselves to God, giving their firstborn of their flocks the most precious, the best, the most costly of their flocks. So for, for, for at least a thousand years, God's people have been dutifully serving the Lord, following his commandments, offering up sacrifice, offering up lambs for forgiveness of redemption, atonement. But yet they all were pointing forward to something else. All were looking forward to something greater. 
The book of Hebrews tells us that uh, if those lambs were able to actually redeem people and actually forgive them of their actual sins, there would have been no need for them ever to be offered again. But yet they kept being offered. Why? Because they were not meant themselves to forgive. Only to point to the redemption that comes by the Lord Jesus Christ, that once and for all sacrifice, the final Lamb of God who would come not just for the Jews, but the Gentiles, the whole world. So behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, from that passage and from many others as well, we get this biblical idea that Jesus did everything that was necessary to save sinners. Jesus did everything necessary to save sinners. Why? Because of the infinite value of his sacrifice. John says there, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. The sin of the world. Singular. Sin. Notice that. John 1.29. Sin of the world. Not all the sins, but sin. Why? Because he's speaking of a collective guilt of the world. Because of Adam's fall, the world is in the collective state of guilt and sin. The sin of the world, the status of guiltiness, of standing before God, unable to save oneself. And it's the sin of the world. There was John, a Jewish prophet, looking at a Jewish Messiah, Jesus crying out to him amidst Jews in Judea and Jerusalem, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of the nation of Israel. Not just of the Pharisees, the best of the best. No, the sin of the world. Not just Jews, but all peoples. He did everything necessary to save sinners because of the infinite value of his sacrifice as a perfect human being and as one who is also at the same time divine. God is infinitely just, we know from Scripture. God is infinitely just. And if God is an infinite God, that means that he has, uh, there are no boundaries, right? There's nothing constraining him, nothing tying his arms or his hands behind his back. Nothing can hold him, nothing can contain him. Stephen said there in, in, in Acts 7 tonight that uh, the heavens, uh, even the highest heavens, cannot contain God, much less a temple. God is infinite. And if God is infinite in himself, and God is a just God, that means that his justice is also an infinite justice. What does that mean? It means that every single sin that every single human being commits against an infinitely just God deserves what? Not just justice, what kind of justice? An infinite justice. An infinite, not even just physical death. Not just spiritual death, infinite justice. Every single sin, every single sin that every human being has ever committed deserves, because it's committed against an infinitely just God, an infinitely just punishment. Meaning the full wrath of God. Every sin deserves that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus did all that was necessary to forgive every single sin that every single human being ever committed against an infinite God, 
satisfying in himself his, the infinite demands of God's justice. His death was of infinite value, infinite worth, more than sufficient. Ancient writers describe it saying uh, that if God had wanted to, uh, the sacrifice of Christ is so sufficient, so infinitely valuable, that if God wanted to, he could have redeemed a thousand worlds. By the one sacrifice of the one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's how infinite, that's how valuable, that's how, that's how full of worth his one sacrifice is as the infinite, divine Son of God in human flesh. If God wanted to save a million, a billion, an infinite number of worlds, the one sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for that. Why? Because he's the Savior. Because he's the Lamb of God who takes away those sins. He's that eternal word that was made flesh. Uh, and, and why of infinite value? Because he suffered on the cross the infinite wrath of God. It's not just that we as human beings and we as sinners sin and we deserve God's infinite justice and wrath. And then there's Jesus who's just like us, another human being. And he dies and, and he sort of covers us and he takes away a bunch of temporal wrath and temporal punishments and maybe he gets us off the hook for some sins and then kind of puts us back in a level playing field, you know, sort of like the Monopoly. We get out of jail and, we, and we, we're able to start rolling the dice again and, and playing the game. But what happens in Monopoly? You roll the dice and eventually you're going to wrap yourself around and you're going to, be, uh, you're going to hit the go-to-jail square and you're back to square one. That, that's us. That's what it is to be a human being, a sinner. We're never getting out of that rat race of jail uh, and of sin. It's inevitable. Jesus, once and for all, infinitely valuable sacrifice, satisfies in him, once and for all, the infinite justice of God. The infinite justice of God. And he experienced all of that. All of that on the cross. We have a, we have a fireman here, and I don't want to tread on uh, his domain, but um, I, I would assume that... Uh, this illustration kind of gets at the point that uh, if a fireman enters a, a burning building, uh, in some sense, obviously he's going to be covered up and he's going to have uh, oxygen and so forth, but in some sense he's going to experience the same kind of danger, right? The same, the same danger of the heat and the smoke and, and the potential death that anyone in a burning building also is experiencing. And whether or not the fireman saves one person out of the building, or he saves everybody in that building, he's experienced the same threat of death as everybody, or the one person, whoever it might be, in that building. In the same way, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came to this world, he suffered the same things that we have suffered. He experienced the same sense of, 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 of dread on the cross, of being under the infinite wrath and fire of hell of God himself. And so whether he redeems one human being or a billion in, in an infinite number of human beings, he experienced all that there was to experience entering the burning building of our sinful world. He died for all sufficiently. He did everything necessary to save sinners. And what that means is this. If you're an unbeliever, or those that we know, of course, who are unbelievers. There's no special kind of sinner that is, that is outside of 
the satisfaction of, of Christ. There's no special kind of sinner that, that sins in that way or sins in this way. And, and that sin, that sin's beyond the pale. That's the kind of sinner. You're the kind of sinner that, that Jesus didn't die for. No, his, his death was a satisfaction, a sufficient satisfaction of infinite value and worth so that he did all that was necessary to save sinners. There's no special class of sinners that he didn't die for. His death is sufficient. And if you're a sinner, no matter what kind of sinner, Jesus' death is the only death, the only satisfaction, the only sacrifice that can forgive your sins. If you're a believer, those of us who believe, this means that Jesus' sacrifice continues to be for us the only sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, the infinite sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice for you and for me in all of our daily struggles with sin. Again, it's not just like he he died once, he did, but it's not that he died once and then we are forgiven once and then we're left on our own. We have to continually come to Jesus Christ with our sins, our daily practical sins in our minds, our, our words, and our deeds, knowing that his once and for all death still sufficiently satisfied for that sin. Again, there's no sin that we as believers go on to commit after our believing in Jesus. There's no sin that we then commit later on that we're on our own. We're on the hook for that sin. He did all that was necessary to save sinners. And this means for us as a church, because he's done all that's necessary to save sinners, that means that we must preach, we must share, we must witness, we must testify, we must evangelize, we must offer the gospel to everyone. And we don't do that in... Uh, we don't do that in spite of our doctrine, as some say. No, we do that because of our theology. Some say, well, you know, you Calvinists, you only, you only uh, share the gospel because you have to. It's in contradiction to your theology, but you know deep down inside that you have to share the gospel with people. And so it's in spite of your very limited idea of Jesus' death that you offer the gospel Two sinners. No, we, we do so because of our theology. Because Jesus Christ has done all that's necessary for every single sinner. Again, there's not one sinner who's outside the pale. There's not one believer who goes on to sin who then becomes somehow outside the camp or outside the gate and Jesus Christ's sacrifice is not good enough for them. No, we, we, we do what we do. We share the gospel because, because of our theology. God's loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes should not perish. That's not just a verse for, for those who aren't Calvinists or those who aren't Reformed. That's, that's our verse too. Whoever believes. Do you believe that? That whoever believes actually receives everlasting life? Jesus died for all sufficiently. He died for all sufficiently. He did all that's necessary for our salvation, for the salvation of the world to save sinners. So he accomplished, he accomplished all that is necessary. What's necessary? Well, there's the justice of God, and he has undergone that. 
and all that is needed to save sinners, he has done. And all who believe will be saved. On the other hand, the Bible also speaks of Jesus' redemption, saying that, yes, he has accomplished redemption and done it all. On the one hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, that redemption is applied savingly to those that the Bible calls the elect or the sheep or the people of God or the church or believers, right? However we want to describe it. So he's accomplished all that's necessary to save sinners so that all who believe are saved, but the Bible also says that he, that what he accomplished is applied savingly only to some. Now our friends who who don't like this doctrine and they say, well, you know, you, you guys believe in limited atonement. That's what they've been saying for 500 years. You believe in limited atonement. You limit the death of Jesus. You limit the, the, the cross of Christ. You limit the, the amount of people that can hear the gospel and believe. You limit Jesus. You limit redemption. Well, everybody actually, every Christian, except for, the, for a universalist who believes that everybody is going to be saved, every Bible-believing evangelical Christian limits the redemption of Jesus Christ in one way or another. The difference is either it's God who applies savingly the death of Christ to some, or it's limited by, on the other hand, by us, that we would believe that somehow that, that we limit. Jesus died for all people's sins, but the sin of unbelief sends you to hell. Right? That's, that's a limiting of the cross, too, of, uh, of the benefits of redemption. So he's done it all, but he applies it to some. That's what he's done. That's what God says he's done. God in his good pleasure, God in his own will, God in his own love, God in his own eternal grace. He's the one who says this. And again, it's not for us to know. Well, you know, maybe you've got to have like a secret handshake. And you know that this guy, this girl is really going to be ready for the gospel. You know, is there a secret word that you have when you're talking to somebody and you just kind of get that, maybe that, that little glint in their eye, right? Maybe there's a, a lightning bolt where God makes us see, okay, this person really, you know, really is elect. You're never going to know that. God never is going to tell you in a little still small voice in your ear, he's elect, tell him the gospel. <laughs> you're never going to hear that. You're never going to know that. Share the gospel, right? But it's God who does the applying. It's God who does the quote-unquote limiting, right? We don't want to even use that language. I don't like that language of limited elements. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a way of limiting and a way of making us feel like we're caught in a box. No, it's God who's the one who applies it. Jesus died sufficiently, but he applies it savingly to some. So Revelation 5.9, that verse that we, that, I, that, that we read for our opening, it's there on the, on the sermon notes, page 2. Uh, the Bible describes Jesus dying to accomplish every aspect of salvation. And we read there in that song of praise in Revelation 5, 9, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Ransoming is the language of freedom. Bringing out of Egypt, bringing out of slavery, freeing a person. You've ransomed people from their sins, from the devil, from the world, for God. And you've made them a kingdom of priests 
and so forth. Notice that this language of, 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 of definiteness, of powerfulness, of what Christ has done. He has ransomed and he has made people a kingdom of priests. Well, which people? And you see it there in, in, the, in the song of praise. So you were slain and so forth. From every tribe, and the, gra- the, uh, the grammar of the, of the text, the Greek text says, from every tribe, from every la- uh, nation, uh, language, from every people, from every nation. So in those categories of tribe, language, people, nation, there are some out of those categories that Jesus Christ has died for in that saving way. He, he applies the benefits of his redemption for some out of every language, of every uh, people, tribe, and nation. That's what it says. Remember, our English is not as clear because it just uses that from once, but all four times it's said in Greek, from or out of every tribe, language, people, nation. Jesus Christ was slain and by his blood ransomed out of those people to be a kingdom, and to be priests. And this is why the Bible, as it speaks in these grand ways, the sufficient side of the ledger, so to speak, for God so loved the world. He died for not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. That kind of stuff. That's the sufficient language. But the Bible also speaks in very particular ways, too. This is why the Bible says in Romans 5, verse number 19, that Jesus Christ accomplished obedience for some. This is why uh, we are told that Jesus accomplished the, uh, the, what's called the expiation of sins, the forgiveness of sins. He accomplished reconciliation for some, the Bible says. He's redeemed some, the Bible says. The Bible describes Jesus dying uh, in the place of particular people. On the one hand, again, his death has done all that's necessary to save everyone in a billion worlds. It's sufficient, fully sufficient. On the other hand, the Bible speaks very clearly that Jesus died for particular people. Just like here in Revelation 9, it's those people that are out of every tribe, right? There's a whole group of people called tribes, languages, people's nations. And out of those, he's redeemed, he's ransomed, he's made kings, he's made the son of man came to not uh, came not to be served he tells us but to serve to give his life to give him uh, give his life excuse me as a ransom for many We, we read that language in the bible i'm the good shepherd john 10 The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, right? That's a very particular language there. So on the one hand, it says, the Bible says that his death is sufficient so that all wolves can come into the sheep pen and become become sheep. On the other hand, he died for the sheep, not the wolves. I know my own, my own know me. I lay down my life for the sheep, he says. So a very particular applying of the redemption to some. That's, we have that, uh, there's that passage there from Ephesians 5 where Paul is writing to husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Notice that particular language. Does he love the world? Jesus Christ, yes, loves the world. But in a more particular sense, in a more special sense, he loves the church. And he gave himself up for her. Notice that. 
substitutionary language there. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 25. So why does this matter? Let me conclude by offering three biblical applications, biblical benefits that affirm the intentional satisfaction of Jesus Christ on the cross for his elect. So why does it matter that we say with Scripture that he died for the church? He died for the sheep. He died for many. First of all, it gives us who believe assurance and confidence that our Savior has been for us from all of eternity on the cross and unto and into all of eternity. And it's out of that assurance and confidence that we can sing and pray with the church in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And we can say for me. And by your blood you ransomed me for God. From this tribe and this language and this people and this nation. You've made me a kingdom. You've made me a priest and I shall reign on the earth. We can say very particularly that because Jesus Christ died for particular sinners, and if I believe, then therefore I can say with confidence he died for me. Secondly, why is it important to say that he died in a saving way uh, for his elect? It gives us the very reason to worship God in the first place. When I can say with Scripture that Jesus actually and personally on the cross died for me to actually and powerfully accomplish my redemption to bring me out of the slavery of sin, the kingdom of, the, of, of, of Satan, and he's applied that death to my, to my account. That's why we worship. That's why I praise him and, and say, worthy are you to open the scroll, to open its seal. And thirdly, it gives us the reason to preach, to evangelize, to be a witness in the world. If Jesus actually, personally, and powerfully died for some out of every tribe, out of every language, out of every people, and out of every nation, then that means that there are particular people that we know or that are in our spheres of influence, that are of our tribe, of our language, of our people, of our nation, that must come to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about that. If he actually died for those out of those wider circles, then he must, he must bring to them the gospel to hear, to recognize their sin, to repent, and to embrace Jesus Christ. So where are those people who are within every tribe and within every language and within every na- people and within every nation. Where are they? Where are they? Do we have a, a book in our Bible in the back somehow? Is that, did I miss that book that has the list? The Lamb has a book of life, but what book do I have? All I have is this. Do we have a list of names of those who are the elect? We don't. So where are these people? They're right outside our doorstep. 
They're right outside our doorstep. So what are we waiting for? Let's pray.